Well, good morning, Bridge. How y'all doing this morning? Good? And we're going to dive into God's Word this morning together. And, um, you know, I think it's awesome that we have the opportunity to send out missionaries like Mariana. And, you know, we have Mariana, uh, Luca, Marianne Lucas. They all start with M's. They all, I get them all confused. They're Mariana, Mariana. Um, we, have, uh, we have missionaries that are serving all, all around the world. And, um, you know, just for them when they come back, we love to give them an opportunity to, to share in our in our services. So, uh, happy Labor Day weekend, extended weekend. You got, some of you are like, oh, yeah, yeah, an extended weekend. That means more house chores, right? I mean, that's what it means for me. It means more outdoor work at the house um, tomorrow and uh, that sort of idea. So, um, this morning as we dive into God's Word, um, I'm going to share about something that's been spinning in my mind for a few weeks now. And, uh, and I, I want to give you just a glimpse of what my sermon prep process is like, okay? Because some of you who might be around me might be like, what? Like, because like, I don't speak every week, right? Like, I'm up here, maybe, you know, once every four weeks, six weeks, something like that, and I, I get to speak. And so my sermon prep process looks something like this. I find out the date of when I'm speaking next, and usually that is like weeks down the road, sometimes even, even months down the, down the road, I, I know in advance. And, and I find out whether there's a specific scripture, focus, topic, um, Series um, that, that I need to that I need to align to or or that we're speaking from during that time. And, and about three weeks out, I begin to to pray, I begin to read, I begin to to listen, and and, and I begin to process like the, whatever that topic may be, right? And this is one of those weeks where there wasn't a pre-designed like topic or series or 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 guidance on where we need to go. And so um, I had this this idea or thought or word that kept creeping back into my mind and my spirit and it was a, it was around the word around the word unity right unity kept kept coming back in and so my brain begins to process everything right and as I'm praying and thinking and reading you know that whole process is going along like my CPU usage, like the week of, goes like way up. Like my brain is like it doesn't matter. I could be like cooking dinner and my brain's like processing sermon on Sunday, usually the week of. And, and I begin to write, usually just a, usually the week of, I begin to write and put things on paper. And, and this week um, was no different, ex- except for I got the Tuesday of this week, and I hadn't written anything yet. And I felt this tug, like, to go in a different direction. And I'm like, okay, God, is that you, or is that a distraction, or what's going on? You know, like, like what are you doing, God? And so I began to pray even more, and, and I was distracted, honestly, battling between these two, two thought processes until Friday, like two days ago, and I'm up here today, so, and uh, about making a decision to actually speak on unity, because unity is not usually something that a pastor loves to speak on, like, it's like speaking on giving, it's like almost the same, like not usually topics that, that we love to, love to talk about, and um, so I, I had been processing it for a few weeks, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said this, and, 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 he, and I felt like it was this, that we're in this season of preparing for Bible Engagement Project, kicking off the 1st of October, and many of you heard about it. You know, today there's training for our leaders that are leading in, in different areas and our teachers, and, and the, you've heard about the mission and the vision of why we're doing Bible Engagement, and we're really putting tools in our church's hands to, to grow in our church in our church's hand, to grow in their walk with God. And, and I think that it's, it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be powerful that we can fuel 
our church to continue to move forward and, and grow in their walk with God. But I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying that all of those processes are good, and they're beneficial, and, and they're, they're wonderful, and they're going to make an impact on the people who choose to participate in Bible engagement, process, Bible engagement pro, project. Whew. But none of that matters if the church isn't in unity. It's like, it doesn't mean that That there's, there, it doesn't mean that like, we can't grow in our walk with God individually. And it doesn't mean that we can't be doing the same thing together. But if we're not actually in true relational unity, it really doesn't mean anything. It's good, but God's will is for his church to be in unity with one another, with each other. And what I mean by that, like I got this like, image in my head of like two runners, right? And if we're running a race, we know where the finish line is, right? And we run... And we kind of run like you have the same gate, right? Like we're going to get there together, like we're a team. You have the same gate, the same step, where you're going to take the same, same step with each other. But if we're not in unity, in relational unity with each other, we might still be running a race, and we might still be runners, but we're all running in different directions, right? Like you've got a couple people over here running this way, and a couple people over here running this way. Yes, we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same task. We're running. But are we running in unity together relationally? And so this morning, I'm going to ask if you would turn your Bibles to John 13, and we're going to be in verses 34 and 35. And uh, before we dive into that scripture this morning, I just want to give you a little context that um, the John, th- John chapters 13 through 17 are kind of like Jesus' farewell speech. They're kind of like Jesus' like last hurrah before, before he goes to the cross. And it's, he, uh, he's kind of like summarizing, detailing some of, what, uh, some of what he had taught his disciples or throughout, throughout his ministry. And um, he's bringing to light what he's been teaching them all along. And so we find ourselves in John 13, verse 34 and 35. And, and I'm going to read it this morning. It says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, this morning, my sermon title is this. Revolutionary love equals revolutionary unity. Revolutionary love equals revolutionary unity. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that what you've been stirring in my spirit for, for a, a few weeks now, God, would uh, I be able to communicate it effectively this morning. God, I pray that you would um, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, God, to hear what you're speaking to us as a church, God, as you're speaking to my heart. Lord, I pray that um, you would give us hands and feet to do what you might be calling us to do today. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Revolutionary love equals revolutionary unity. Now, throughout the Gospels, this kind of same idea as what we see in Matthew I mean, in, in John 13, 34, and 35, um, appears. You know, if we look at John 15, 12, it says, My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. And the same, was, and, and the same is recorded throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. And, and Jesus, Jesus, is, Jesus is, in this, in this, in this passage, is talking to the disciples. Like, I want to make sure that's clear. They, he's talking to church people, if you, were, if you were to say. He's talking to people who are in relationship 
with, with, with him. They're, 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 they're believers. And he's saying to the church, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other. And I know that some Christians, you know, they, I even heard it this week. It was kind of comical. And we were in Tuesday night prayer meeting. And somebody said, Jesus wasn't a hippie. Like, he just doesn't say, like, I just want you to love each other. And that's what everybody And that's true. That's true. But I think that we can look at Jesus' love and the way that he loved others and use it as a model for us to move forward. Because I believe that he says this. He says, love each other. And he's addressing an issue that he knew would come once he ascended into heaven. He knew that we are human. He knew that there's selfishness inside of our human nature. And that that would creep back in to our lives if it wasn't addressed. And in John 17, 21 through 23, and I'm going to paraphrase this this morning. I don't even have it on the screen. Jesus is praying for the believers. And he says to the Father, he says, don't let this happen. Don't let them become divided. And he says, I pray that they will be complete, in complete unity, that they would be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world will know that you have sent me and that you love them as you love me. And I know that that's kind of crazy to think about Jesus praying to the Father. You know, we're, we're one, you're one, they're one as, as we're all together. But he's saying that, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, is a model for us as believers to look after in the way that we love one another, the way that we interact with one another. God has always existed in perfect unity. God has never existed as a wanderer or as a loner, right? Like, the Holy Spirit always confirms what Jesus taught Right? Jesus always taught what was part of the character of who we see God is. They never contradict themselves. They're always working in unity together. And this is the kind of unity that we as believers should be modeling in our relationships with each other. I believe that unity can only be found when the body of believers really loves one another, as what we read in John thirteen thirty four, as Christ loved them. So let's jump back and look at that scripture again, John 13, 34, and 35. Let's read it again, because we're going to dig, it, dig this down a little bit and ask some questions this morning. Let's read it again. It says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I loved you. You must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, first Jesus says, A new commandment I give you. And as I thought about this idea, like a new commandment, like this isn't really a, a new commandment, right? Like clear back in Leviticus, the first like document of Israel, like if you were to think about it, Leviticus was like Israel's constitution, if you were to think about that. Clear back in Leviticus 19, it says, love, love your neighbor as yourself. So this concept of loving others is as old as what Israel is, right? It wasn't a, it's not, the commandment itself is not new. But what is new was the standard by which love is measured. The old standard was to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That was the old standard. The new standard is love others as I have loved you, or as Jesus 
has loved you. There's a different gauge. There's a different, different gauge, different measuring stick, if you were. And the word new carries a connotation as revolutionary, hence the title of my message this morning, of revolutionary. The revolutionary command. Love one another as I have loved you. So the question then this morning that we have to ask is, how did Jesus love? How do we gauge that? How did Jesus show revolutionary love? How did he demonstrate that love? Well, I believe number one is that he served. Jesus served. In this, just a short time earlier in this very same chapter in John 13, we find Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, uh, if you have never really studied this, this portion of Scripture about Jesus, how he took off his outer clothing, right, and he put on the clothes of a servant, like, that in and of itself is so powerful that, uh, that even his, even, he even took on the look and identity of, of a servant. And he washed his disciples' feet. You say, Pastor Rob, like, what is so big deal about washing, washing people's feet? Uh, well, that's a big deal. <laughs> Because I don't know if you've washed the person who's sitting next to you's feet lately. But it's kind of stanky, a little gross. And in this day and time, in this day and time, people walked around in sandals. And it was dirt. I don't know if you've ever been to the desert. Like, that's close to, like, dirt streets. Like, I grew up on a dirt road, and I wore sandals and rode my bike, and my feet were dirty. And I wasn't even walking around for miles from ta- to go from town to town or place to place. Their feet got dirty. And it was the custom that people would, whenever a guest would come into a house or somebody would come into the house, um, that the servant of the house would wash the person's feet, would clean, would clean their feet so the dirt doesn't get in the house. It's like taking off your shoes, if you would, like in today's day and age, a little bit. But Jesus, this person of power, he was a rabbi, he was a teacher, he was a leader, He took off his position, his clothing that symbolized his position of power, and put on the clothes of a servant. And he knelt down and he washed his disciples' feet. He served them. This was countercultural even in their day. Because even in their day, you used your position and power to elevate yourself. The world says when you have power, you use it for self-benefit and self-promotion. Are you smart? Leverage it for your for your for self-promote for leverage it to make money. Do you have money? Leverage it to increase your standard of living. Do you have a position of power? Leverage it to control the world in a way that benefits you. I mean, just look at the the leaders of the Roman Empire throughout time and their power that they had and how they leveraged it to control the world in a way that they wanted it to benefit them. And here you have Jesus with with all of those things, a person of power. He was absolutely viewed as a person of power. I mean, the government was after him at at this point in time to kill him. Because he was a person of power, a person of influence. In the eyes of his followers, he was almighty God. He was healing the sick, casting out demons. He had power beyond the ordinary man. And here he is, all-powerful God, at the end of his life, washing his disciples' feet. He wasn't using his power to protect himself for self-promotion, but to serve. He was kneeling down and serving to pour himself out for them. And as he washed their feet, he explained to them that this was just a symbol of the ultimate way he was going to serve them. Not by washing the dirt off their feet with a water and a towel, but by shedding his blood on the cross to wash away their sin. Number one, Jesus served. Number two, 
He used his abilities to meet their needs. Now, I'm not going to stay on this point too long because we can look throughout Scripture, throughout, the, throughout Jesus', Jesus time on earth, his whole life, there's example after example where we see Jesus leveraging his abilities and his power to meet the needs of others through miracles, through, through multiple different areas. He used his abilities for their needs. And it's kind of connected to the, next, to the next point is that he shared in their pain and sorrow. And I think a good example of this is from John, John 11, where Jesus shows up at Lazarus's tomb. And J- Lazarus had just died, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, were there, and, and they're weeping. And we find the shortest verse in all the Bible in this chapter, in John eleven thirty five that says, Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? Because if you read the Bible, if you read Scripture, and you see the context of the story, you see that Jesus knows that he's going to resurrect Lazarus. That he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why not skip the weeping and get to the raising, right? Like, that would be a much more, like, enthralling story other than reading about the weeping. And they're pretty detailed about, about the mourning that took place. And the answer is, he was weeping because they were weeping. He is so connected to them to their, and to their pain that when they weep, he weeps. He feels our pain and sorrows. He makes them his own. He has made himself one with us. Just like each member feels what the other member feels of the Trinity. Because they're in essence, they are a model of how we should be following. Jesus feels what we feel. Do you have a broken heart? Are you, do you suffer with sadness? Jesus feels it with you. Yes, he is a God who sits high above the heavens and holds the world in his hand. But he's also a God who came so close that he weeps with us in our pain. Jesus served. He used his ability to meet their needs. And he shared in their pain and sorrow. Number four is he lived among them. He lived among them. Jesus came, so, came, came close to us. He didn't just stand in heaven. You know, he had this option, guys. He could have stood in heaven and taken a megaphone, right? And talked to, preached his love to us as his crea- as creator, creation on earth. But instead, he decided that he came down and took on flesh and blood and was born into our broken world. Like, think about that. Like, my mind, like, if I was, if I had the ability and I was almighty God, like, I'm not too sure if I would be like, oh, look, they just screwed up. Do I really want to go down to that place? Like, these countries are fighting, these people are fighting. Do I really want to go down and take on a form of flesh and blood? Or can I just stand here and, you know, kind of dictate what is happening in the world below? But he took on flesh and blood, and he was born into our broken world. John 1.14 says that, that the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. And if you were part of Leap this past year, you know that like, this scripture is like very... Um, very indwelled in my heart. It's something that like echoes in my, in my soul. Because Jesus came and he, he made his dwelling among us. He dwelt with us. And, and this idea of dwelling in the original Greek language literally means to tabernacle. That his presence actually came and lived among, among us, among us as people. Or to tabernacle. Or, or even the word tabernacle is like to tent, Right? And the illustration I like to use here is, have you ever gone camping with someone? You ever been camping? And I'm not talking about in your 60-foot luxury RV that, that you 
camp in, like it's nicer than most people's houses. I mean, for real, have you ever grabbed a tent and went tent camping with somebody? Yeah, some of you have? Okay. I mean, you learn a lot about someone when you're in a tent with them. Am I right? Like if you go tent camping for a couple of days, you learn a lot about the people you're camping with. You learn all sorts of things about them. You, you learn how often they bathe or not. The odors, good and bad, that they emanate from their being. You find out their habits, both good and bad. You find out information about them that you probably didn't know before about their life. You live in close quarters with them. Jesus came and made his dwelling among us. He dwelt with us. He tented with us, if you want to say that. He left heaven and came to earth to live as you and I. He got so close to people that they could touch him in the physical, that they could interrupt him when he was, when he was speaking, that they could betray him with a kiss. He came close to us and showed us his love. He made himself one for us, which leads me to number five, and that is that he bridged the gap to get to them. See, there's something in, inside of all of us that, that love to be with people who are like us, right? Like, if you're highly educated, you like to hang out with people who are, have the same education level. If you have the same, we like people who have the same sense of humor as us, because they make us feel good, right? We like to hang out with people who have the same socioeconomic status as us, sometimes even the same race, the same preferences and desserts. You know, name it, you name it, it's there. We like people who are like us. And it happens almost kind of naturally. Like if you were to back up and sit in a seat and you look at a large group of people, you see it kind of naturally take place in their interactions. That people who have similar likes, dislikes, preferences, they seem to... They seem to divide and kind of form their own, own I don't know what you want to call it, groups? Groups? And, and that kind of takes place. And it happens kind of naturally. Why? Because we see a gap and a divide between my, who I am and who you are, right? There's a gap there. And there's a divide bet- between us and our human minds that some reason, for some reason we can't seem to bridge. But there was never a greater gap than that which Jesus overcame by coming to us. Like, think about that. By coming and dwelling with us. He was the creator. And when I say creator, like, he designed the nucleus of an atom. You guys, most of you may not even know what a nucleus of an atom is. Because most of you, like me, can't even set the timer on your microwave. My, pop, my breaker went off yesterday. And I was like, how do I set the time? And, you know, obviously my wife comes in and is like, beep, 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 beep. Okay, it's done. Okay, perfect. But he designed the smallest part of the universe to the largest part of the universe. He was rich in heaven, but was born into a family that was, that was poor. He was perfectly holy, yet, we, yet the earth that he came to was so sinful. He was, per, he was perfect, but his birth was nothing like a perfect scenario. Jesus didn't come to us because he was lonely. He had his people. He had his circle. He existed in the Trinity. But he left his circle and came into ours with the purpose of including us in his, in his circle. Does that make sense? 
1 John 3, 1 says this. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And another version in the New King James says this, and, and I, I kind of like the wording here. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. See, it's not just the amount of God's love, but it's the manner of his love, the action of his love, his, the, the lavishing of his love on us. His love that was serving self-emptying, empathizing, incarnating, coming and living with us, gap-bridging love that we see in Jesus. Revolutionary love brings revolutionary unity. Jesus wasn't saying that everyone needs to get along and everyone needs to just love one another. You know, go back to what the phrase that was used. It wasn't just a hippie singing the music, right? Singing the songs. He was saying, in the midst of your disagreement, love. Disagree and still love each other. Disagree and still be in unity. Don't disagree and avoid. That's not what we're called to. You may not like someone else's opinion, but it doesn't mean to cut them from in your life. I can love someone who doesn't share the same opinion as I do, or even the same political opinion. As long as it doesn't contradict the word of God, we can agree to disagree and still love each other and be in unity. See, unity must be pursued. It doesn't just happen, right? Revolutionary love is a muscle that has to be stretched. Like we're going to be stretching our muscles and engaging with Scripture in October as a church. We're going to be, that's going to be a muscle that we, some people in this church, including myself, like diving into God's Word, being intentional on a, big, on a grander scale of being in, engaging with the Scriptures. Sometimes it takes us just doing it, church. Like just to step out and do it. And follow Jesus' example of, of love, to be in revolutionary unity. And so what I'd like to do in the next few moments is to take a look at these five, these five, these, these, these five ways that we see Jesus' love and kind of examine ourselves, right? Like, let's do a litmus test for ourselves, right? For, for us as a church or for us as individuals. How did Jesus show revolutionary love that leads to revolutionary unity and apply it to our own lives? Well, number one, we said that he served. And the first question I would ask this morning is, are you serving others? So let's start inside the church, right? Are you serving others in the church? Officially serving those around you in the body of believers. And I constantly hear people say, you know, I don't have time, or that's for someone else, or I'm not wired for that, or my favorite one is this, I've already paid my dues. Usually that's referring to kids' ministry. But um, I've, I've already paid my dues, but as a church, we consistently have a shortage of team members and to, to serve on our, on our teams, from worship ministry to greeting to cafe to ushers to youth ministry to kids ministry to community groups. Why? Everybody should be serving on a ministry team on some level. That's what unity looks like. That's what unity is. That's washing feet as a church. Everyone sharing in the body of believers. A consumer mindset does not bring unity to the church. So maybe an action step today would be to go talk to a ministry leader and explore what serving might look like. And let's not limit this to serving in the church. You're like, Pastor Rob, that was real convenient. One of your points led to, you know, trying to recruit people for, to serve in ministry. Well, let's not limit it to serving in the church. Let's just think about your general attitude. Are you using your position of power to go up or go down? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving others? 
To be a follower of Jesus means that your life is marked by service. And those with the most power should serve the most. So some good questions to follow up with that today are these. Is your life more characterized by the world's attitude towards power or Jesus's? Have you used what God has given you for self-promotion or leverage to love others in a revolutionary way? Revolutionary love, you know, like this, through revolutionary serving brings revolutionary unity. Number two, we see that Jesus used his abilities for the needs of others. Are you leveraging your life for others? What if Jesus leveraged his abilities for you the same way that we as Americans often leverage ours for others? What if Jesus was like, you know, I've got a pretty good gig here being God and all. I can just sit back, live off the interest of my creation, and, and just let time just float by. And oftentimes we take our time and talents and treasures and we say something very, very similar. We say, I have a good life. I've lived the American dream, if you were to say. I don't have time to worry about other people. I think what discourages me is a lot of Christians receive Jesus but continue to live for themselves. It's like Jesus is a fire escape. Like, it's a, like he's a backup plan. And when I need it, I know that that ladder's over there. But in the meantime, it's all about me. The scripture says that our love has to be more than words. In 1 John 3, 16 and 18, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Not in talk, not with our mouth, but in deed. What is your giving like? And I'm not talking about financial giving this morning. That is a part of it. It's a piece of it. But what is your time, your talents, and treasure look like? Revolutionary unity is when the needs of those in the body of believers are being met through other believers in the body. When you know of a young mom or young dad that needs help getting their yard cut, and instead of just driving by every day after work, it's swinging in and helping them get their yard mowed. Whenever you, you, you know of a person who, who needs their car fixed and you have the skill and ability to make that happen, it's taking time to make that happen. And helping them. Do you help them? Revolutionary unity is built in the situations where we roll up our sleeves and we use the skills and talents that God has given us to meet the needs of others. And if you think about like a mission trip, right? Like if you've ever been on a mission trip, there's unity that is built among a missions team like none other. And I believe the reason why is because they roll up their sleeves, they use what skills, talents, or lack thereof, skills and talents that they've been given, and they use it towards the same mission of helping others and seeing others come to Christ and meeting needs around them. God has prospered us in our abilities for the sake of his kingdom, not our own. To follow him means that we approach life in the same general mentality that he approached life with. And that wasn't one in which he lived in his abilities, but leveraged them for each one of us. I know of some examples across our church over the past, couple, past few years that our unity has been built. I think about community groups that cover, uh, that, that, 
that collect money to cover funeral expenses of someone else's family member. Unity looks like when you take a day off work and drive across a state to help someone clean out an apartment of a loved one who had passed away. Unity looks like when a group of people come together to make a couple's dream of having a family become a reality. Unity looks like getting behind the family that's looking for, that is looking to adopt a kid. Adopt a, adopt a kid. It gets behind them and helps them see that dream become a reality. Unity looks like when the electrician, the plumber, the IT professional, the cleaner, the businessman or woman, the artist, the mechanic the actor, come together and see the needs of the body in our community met. When we see the needs of the body of Christ put first, then we see the community transformed. Revolutionary unity is marked by believers who use their abilities to meet the needs of others. So a good question for us today. When you see or know of someone in need in our church, do you respond? Do you respond? Number three, it says that Jesus shared in their pain and sorrow. Do you share in the pain and sorrow of others? And this is directly related to the next one that says that he lived among us. Because in order to fill someone's pain, you have to be involved in their lives. Are you really involved in other people's lives? Believers or non-believers? Can people touch you? Are you close enough to fill someone else's pain? Do you know anyone on this level, and are you praying for them outside of your family? Are you investing in others? These are just questions, guys. I'm just running them through. Are you investing in others? Everyone should be investing in someone. That's the whole process of making disciples, of helping people follow Jesus. Who are you doing life with? Who are the two or three people that you're bringing along with you on the journey? Think about that. Are you? You know, often our, our easy excuse, you know, as, as people in our, in our culture, in our society, is to, say, is to say, but I don't have time. I'm so busy. Listen, this morning I'm not busting your chops, right? I'm not, I'm not like beating you over the head this morning. But, but Jesus was busy. We're all busy. Jesus had 12 guys that he invested in. Like, have you ever tried, like, if you've ever really tried to disciple one person... You know the amount of time that it takes to disciple one person. Jesus discipled 12, and he had a full traveling schedule. He spoke to upwards of 15,000 people at a time. He was constantly approached by people who, needed, who wanted his time for miracles or to ask questions. And all of this, he still made time to know and be known by 12 B-list guys. Like, think about that. We have time for one or two relationships to be intentional with. Everybody should be pouring into someone. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if I ask you to pull out your phone right now and show me the numbers of three people in your contacts who are not Christians that you could call right now and go to Starbucks with this afternoon, could you do it? Could you do it? As believers, we like to be with people that we're like, right? But how often do we think about those relationships outside of that? What about three people in the church? that you have a close enough relationship with, that after service you can invite them over to your house without cleaning your house. (laughs) Reality, right? That's when you know the relationship is close. When you can say, hey, come over to my house. Don't mind the mess. Right? Revolutionary unity is marked by the church that is invested in the lives of each other. 
Lastly, number five, he bridged the gap to get to us. Are you bridging the gap to get to others? Are you building your life around people who feel comfortable, that you feel comfortable with or around people who need Jesus? To follow Jesus is to follow him across the gap, to bridge the gap. Are you willing to be part of a church that's not about you, but is about reaching people who are far from God? And as a pastor, we hear, we hear all sorts of crazy excuses of why people come to churches and why they leave churches and why they're part of churches and why they're not part of churches. But in reality, most people are looking for a church that has everything just the way that they like it. And, you know, when I do partnership, you know, part of, part of what we do here at Bridges, we offer part, we do partnership where we partner in ministry together. And, and we do partnership uh, applications and we meet with people. One of the, thing, one of the phrases that I often say to, to people that I know that are coming to Bridge from another church is I say this phrase. And I say, the reason why you left your previous church is probably the reason why you'll leave Bridge. Because in reality, that's often what happens. The reason why they left their previous church is the reason why they leave, they leave our church. And in reality, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our leadership team. But it's about two things. Helping people find and follow Jesus. Helping people find Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. And when the church can be unified around those two things... I want, you to look, I want us to look back into John 13, 35 at what Jesus' prediction is of the power that that kind of church will have and how it affects the community. In John 13, 35, it says this. It says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If you have love one for another. By seeing the revolutionary love Christians have, have one for another, by seeing the revolutionary unity that is the result of that love, People will see the difference and know that this church, that, that the church, this, this church is full of true disciples. It has to start inside the church before it can spill outside the church. It starts by revolutionary love inside the walls of this building. It starts by revolutionary unity inside the walls of this building. And it's up to us. It's up to us to stop making excuses of saying, hey, you know. I don't think that person likes me or I can't talk to them because they said something I didn't like or something happened between their friend and my cousin 10 years ago so I think they look at me weird now or there was relational tension 10 years ago between their kids and my kids and now we don't talk or they said something that hurt me. I'm over it but I avoid them. Doesn't really sound like you're over it to me. Doesn't sound like revolutionary love to me. Doesn't sound like unity to me. And these are the things that I, we hear you hear, I'm sure you hear the same things from people inside the walls of the church. This isn't just applied to bridge, guys. This is the church. You know, every church battles these same, these, same, these same things. And I believe that that's why the church doesn't explode like what we see in Acts 2. If we want to reach people in our community, the, un, the unforgiveness, the relational awkwardness, the avoiding, the gossip, it all has to stop and revolutionary love must step in. If you find yourself saying some of those things that I said, address it. Don't wait on another party. Address it. The Bible calls us to a higher standard than avoiding someone else. We are called to a higher standard than ignoring and moving on. We are called to love one another, and sometimes love looks like hard conversations. Sometimes love looks like pulling out the word of God and looking for truth. It might look like turning to Matthew 18 for guidance on where to go from here. Sometimes it looks like correction, right? Hello, any of you guys have kids? Right? 
Don't you just love to correct your kid? Isn't that like the best thing in the world? No. You, as parents, we don't like to correct, but we do it because we love them. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes to have conversations. It's not fun, but we do it because we want to pursue revolutionary love in our lives. On the other hand, every one of us must remain teachable. Every one of us must remain in, remain in the truth of God's word. This is countercultural. This is why in John 13, 35, it says, the world will know that you are my disciples because you're love for one another because it doesn't look anything like the way that the world would address unity amongst people. You will be different. You can't grow alone. There's no genuine discipleship apart from being involved in unity of the body of believers. You know, I look at the book of Acts in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. The pre- just the presence of a unified church is what won the community around them for Christ. Is what brought believers in. It says daily people were people were being added to their number. It wasn't because they sent out missionaries or did cool outreaches in a park or, or did any of that thing. It was simply the unif- unity that that church had. Imagine what could happen here in Lansdale. Imagine what could happen in, in North Penn region. Imagine what could happen in our country if the church became the unified body of believers that God calls us to. God's plan A for the world is the local church is his church, is his people. It's how God desires to work in each side of one of each one of our lives. It's how God reveals himself to us. It's how God reveals himself to the world. If we look at the gospel, Jesus revealed himself to people in different ways. For some people, it was physical touch, right? For some people, it was go get wet in that river. For some people, it was wet mud on their eyes made from spit. For some people, it was multiplication of food. For some people, it was, it was just his spoken voice. And it's no different today. God reveals himself to us and to others through each and every one of you. There's a part of Jesus I can only know by knowing you. There's a part of Jesus that the world can only know by knowing you. Because he reveals himself in you in a different way than he does me, than he does Pastor Matt, than he does any, any, any other believer in the room. And when we're in unity, God will be revealed to the world around us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come this morning. I'm going to ask, can we go back? We're going to go back to John 13, 34, and 35, because I think we want to, I want to read this one last time. And it says this, it says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Revolutionary love that we see in Jesus is marked by serving. It's marked by selfless living. It's empathizing. It's involved in the lives of others. And it's bridging the gap between Christ and the world around us. That is what will bring revolutionary unity. And this morning, I'm going to ask... Um, in your seats, if you would just bow your heads and, and close your eyes this morning, we're gonna we're gonna kind of maybe end or do a response time just a little differently this morning. And, and maybe this morning, if you if everybody would bow their head, every eye closed, you know, this morning you say, I struggle in one of these areas. You say, maybe I struggle in serving others because 
it's a time issue or it's a contentment issue or it's a commitment issue. Maybe you, you struggle in living selflessly. You know, inside each one of us, our natural man is selfish. And you say, Pastor Rob, I struggle with that. I struggle with wanting to live and live for myself. I struggle with wanting to put myself first. Maybe you struggle with empathizing and feeling the pain of others. Or you recognize other struggles and or, or you struggle in really recognizing others' feelings and struggles. And, and can I tell you, that was me. For a long time, I had a hard time empathizing. Even into my days of ministry, I had a hard time empathizing with, with other people's pain. And it really took God breaking me through my own pain so I could feel the pain of others. But maybe that's you this morning. You struggle with that. Maybe you struggle with isolation and loneliness. And, and you lack the desire to be involved in other people's life, let alone be intentional in, in, in discipleship relationships. Maybe you feel like you have nothing to offer. Maybe this morning you struggle with bridging the gap between Christ and the world around you. Maybe there's conversations that need to be had and healing that needs to take place and forgiveness that needs to be offered so that you can love others like Jesus and be in unity with the body of believers. Maybe it's hard for you to bridge the gap between your faith and your workplace or between your faith and the, the people at your school. This morning, if you fall into any one of those categories, can I just ask you to stand right where you're at? And, and this morning, church, I'm standing. Like, I, I know I'm up here on the platform, I'm physically standing, but I'm standing because I fall into some of these categories that I struggle in some of these areas. I'm not saying that you failed, but you've struggled in some of those areas. So if that's you, would you... Would you stand with me this morning? See, I believe this morning that we all struggle in one of these areas. And I don't know what the, what the next step is for you. Because some of these areas are vastly different. But I know that the next step for each one of us it starts with surrendering. And in a moment, the worship team is going to play the new song that they sang this morning called I Will Make Room. And I'm going to ask if we could put that, the lyrics on the screen for the first verse. It says, here's where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown. It says, when he says every burden, every crown, we're laying down, we're surrendering our burdens. And when he says every crown, that's our positions of power. Every one of us is in a position of power in someone else's, just in, in the eyes of someone else. We're laying down our positions of power and surrendering. And I love what the next, the next verse says. It says every lie and every doubt. Every lie that the enemy has spoken to you, that you have nothing to offer those around you, every doubt that says that you don't have the ability to help others, the next line is, this is my surrender. I'm laying it down. And the verse, and then the chorus says, I will make room for you. I will make room in my time, in my talents, in my treasures. I'll make time in my life to do what you want to do in my life. 
And then in the verse it says this. It says, shake up the ground of all my traditions. See, I love that because I think that oftentimes we get set in what, we get set in our selfish ways, right? Like we get set in the saying, I like it this way, I do it this way. And we find out that our way doesn't really work. It becomes tradition for us. We've tried and we fail. And it says, break down the walls of all my religion, the things that I've practiced for years, the years of avoiding issues, the time, over that time, I've built up walls in my relationships. Tear them down. Because God, your way is better. That's what the next line says. Your way is better. I submit to your way. And so this morning, if you are standing here this morning, I'm going to close by asking you to do something, to take a step that's even a step further than, you know, standing in your seat. I'm going to ask, would you take a step and come forwards this morning? Would you step out of your seat and just, just come up around this altar as a, as a body of believers in unity? Would you, would you come? Would you join me up here? I'm going to come down. I'm going to, I'm going to join you guys here in just a moment. But would you come forward as an act of surrender to say, Jesus, I'm taking a step. It might be uncomfortable. It might not be what, what, what I thought this was going to look like. That we run out of room in the front. We can squeeze together. We can fill the aisle, whatever we need to do. And I'm going to ask, would you, would you sing this song with us this morning? As a, in, a, in unity as a body of believers, would you, would you sing this song that I'm surrendering? I'm tearing down my walls. I'm addressing the issues in, that, I, that I may have. Because, God, there's nowhere else we want to be as a church than where you want us to be. Because your way, your way is better. Your way is the way that we want to follow. Pastor Matt, would you lead us this morning?